Episode 125. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanmerty. If you're a regular listener, I'm sure you're already aware of the new additions to the Hamlet podcast output, so it's quite nice now to be back to the play itself. We're at the beginning of Act 4, Scene 5, and we're back in the palace. At this point in the play, Horatio begins to come into his own. He's been around since the very beginning, observing and, of course, supporting Hamlet, but he's been in the background more than most other characters. We haven't even seen him since Act 3, Scene 2, which is quite a while ago now, when he and Hamlet chatted briefly after the play was ended so abruptly. Horatio is maybe the most enigmatic character in the play. He's very problematic because he raises more questions than he answers, and there are a great many curious inconsistencies that we will encounter in the coming scenes. Before we cover the rather short piece of text earmarked for this episode, I want to revisit some of the highlights of Horatio thus far. Like I said, he's among the first characters we meet in the play, and the guards have brought him to the battlements in Act 1, Scene 1, because he is a gentleman and a scholar, so hopefully he will know how to speak to the ghost of the king. He is from Elsinore, and definitely recognises the king's armour, which he wore in a battle something like 30 years previously. Hamlet identifies him as his classmate from university in Wittenberg, and Horatio himself asks a lot of questions about life in the palace of Elsinore, particularly around the king's loud and boisterous drinking patterns. It's rather peculiar that someone of his stature, either as a scholar, a gentleman or a close friend of the prince, is in the palace unbeknownst to Hamlet. He says he came back for the king's funeral when they do finally meet, but didn't make himself known to Hamlet in all the time between then and the marriage. Where has he been for the months between the funeral, which he apparently came for, and the wedding of Claudius and Gertrude? Maybe all of these questions can be explained, if not fully answered, by the fact that Horatio is a patchwork of elements from various sources. There's a kind of a best friend character in Saxo Grammaticus who keeps an eye out for the Hamlet character. There might also have been an older courtier in the Lost Hamlet play who remained on Hamlet's side, which might explain how Horatio starts the play as the statesman-like figure prevailed upon to address the regal ghost. The name Horatio appears to have come from another play, Thomas Kidd's Spanish Tragedy. This play dated from the early 1580s and it was enormously popular. It features a ghost who wishes to avenge his murder, a bereaved man who pretends to be mad, and a performance used to play tricks on the murderers. Maybe this sounds familiar? Of course, Hamlet is a masterpiece in its own right, but Shakespeare certainly owed a not inconsiderable debt to the Spanish tragedy. Like I said, Horatio appears by name as a character in Kid's play, And this character is also a decent man and a good friend, but in the Spanish tragedy, he's the victim of a particularly grisly murder. So all of these various sources might have something to do with the way that Horatio could be significantly older than Hamlet, but also is his classmate and his friend. He could be from Elsinore, but he also seems like something of a visitor from Wittenberg, and so on. Interestingly, he's one of the very few people left alive at the end of the Shakespeare play, in stark contrast with his namesake in the play by Kidd. As we move forward in Hamlet, there will be a few more inconsistencies that will crop up, and while again I can't promise to solve all of the mysteries surrounding Horatio, I'll certainly do my best to identify them. 
Act 4, Scene 5 begins with Horatio and Gertrude, somewhere in the private royal apartments of the palace. They enter in that most Shakespearean way, in mid-conversation. With them is a servant, a gentleman, although in performance the role is very often given to a woman. Gertrude is the first to speak, and she says, I will not speak with her. We aren't given anything more than that. But, since there's only one other woman in the play, we can guess that she's probably talking about Ophelia. And here, Gertrude is refusing to speak with her. The servant, who has presumably already made the request that the Queen meet the young lady, tries to insist. She is importunate, indeed distract. Her mood will needs be pitied. Importunate is one of those words that often trips actors. Importune rhymes with fortune, not cartoon, and it means a state of urgent begging. To importune someone is when you're stuck in a state of importunity, this state of desperation when you're asking repeatedly for something important, to the extent that maybe it's even a little bit annoying. So it seems that Ophelia is very eager to see Gertrude. Perhaps this refusal has been going on for quite some time. The gentleman continues that she's not just importunate, she's distract. She's gone mad or maybe lost her mind. And then there's a little play on the heartstrings, if perhaps this will work on Gertrude. Her mood will needs be pitied. Ophelia is in such an awful state, or mood, that she deserves the Queen's pity. Of course, we know that Gertrude has a very good reason to want to avoid Ophelia. We haven't been told how long it is since Gertrude watched Ophelia's father get stabbed in her room by her son, Ophelia's erstwhile boyfriend. Has there been any explanation of how the old man died? The gentleman could simply mean that Ophelia is distracted with grief and very distressed. There's great tension in this setup already. We've heard nothing of the ramifications of Polonius's murder, and now we have the Queen on stage trying to avoid speaking to Ophelia about it, and she's presumably just outside the door trying to get in. Gertrude doesn't seem enormously sympathetic here, as she now asks, what would she have? So what does she want? We now come to a curious passage in the text that different productions, and indeed different editors, allocate to different speakers. Some give this to Horatio, allowing him to explain the situation, but others give it to the same servant. She speaks much of her father says she hears there's tricks in the world, and hems and beats her heart, spurns enviously at straws, speaks things in doubt that carry but half sense. Her speech is nothing, yet the unshaped use of it doth move the hearers to collection. They aim at it, and botch the words up fit to their own thoughts, which, as her winks and nods and gestures yield them, indeed would make one think there might be thought, though nothing sure yet much unhappily. If there were any doubt left that they were talking about Ophelia, it's here removed. She speaks much of her father. At least somebody is still interested in the poor old man. His death is little more than a political problem now for Claudius, and you know well that he'll turn it into an opportunity if he can. Ophelia's saying that she hears there's tricks in the world. She's suspicious that there are deceptions or plots or tricks afoot. Evidently, she's not satisfied with whatever she's been told about her father. She hems, that means she's saying a hem or, or coughing or something like that, and beats her heart and spurns enviously at straws. 
twice in the previous scene, we discussed straws that were tiny little things not worth fighting over. From the depiction of the Norwegian land campaign all the way to Poland, we're here reduced to a bereaved young woman distractedly worried about the tiniest little things in the aftermath of her father's death. It's just a little turn of phrase, but it's definitely not accidental. She speaks things in doubt that carry but half sense. Ophelia isn't sure of what she's talking about, but there's a kind of a half-truth in what she's saying amid the doubt. She's all over the place, it seems. The servant continues that her speech is nothing. In and of itself, that's not a big deal. She's bereaved, she's devastated. But there's a bigger problem. Her words and half-sensical ideas may not mean anything, yet the unshaped use of it doth move the hearers to collection. All the little half-formed fragments of what Ophelia is trying to piece together and talk about don't make much sense on their own, but other listeners who might try to gather them all together and make their own narrative could prove a cause for concern. Ophelia's winks, nods and gestures go in tandem with these little things she's saying, and an eager observer could absolutely spot a narrative within it all. Her speech is nothing, yet the unshaped use of it doth move the hearers to collection. They aim at it, and botch the words up fit to their own thoughts, which, as her winks and nods and gestures yield them, indeed would make one think there might be thought, though nothing sure, yet much unhappily. The gentleman is clearly warning the Queen that Ophelia is a problem that needs to be managed, since otherwise the truth of how Polonius died, and Hamlet's guilt and even Gertrude's involvement, might get out, unhappily for all of them. There is a case to be made for Horatio giving this speech, since maybe it's quite presumptuous for an anonymous gentleman to hint so darkly to the Queen. The next lines are also up for grabs. The quarto gives them to Horatio, but the folio gives them to the Queen. The lines go, "'Twere good she were spoken with, for she may strew dangerous conjectures in ill-breeding minds." Horatio is compounding the point. It's probably a good idea that Gertrude speak with Ophelia, since these little scraps of information she's scattering may strew dangerous conjectures in ill-breeding minds. It's a piece of statecraft. The loose canon Ophelia could unwittingly give ill-breeding minds all of the clues to piece together what actually happened. Even if they were only conjectures, they're still dangerous. If Gertrude speaks these lines, she's here revealed as a very shrewd operator. The next four words are also shared out variously. They are, let her come in. If Horatio has said the previous couple of lines, and gets these too, this can be a rather gentle request or encouragement to Gertrude. Please, just see her. Or indeed, the Queen can cut him off, if he said the lines, and agree that she really should see Ophelia, under the circumstances, just, oh, let her come in. Now, I haven't seen an instance wherein any text says that Gertrude gets the two lines and then Horatio gets to say, let her come in. That would sort of be a bit presumptuous again to talk to the Queen like that. But if everything is up for grabs, why not? We'll save Ophelia's entrance, she's going to come in, for the next episode, But in the show notes for this one, I'll give details of which text give which of these lines to whom, and you can envisage how you design the roles, and maybe direct the scene for yourself. I think that's enough for now, but as ever, thank you for listening. Do be sure to check out the two new series that we have going, The Basics and our book club, details of which are all available on the newly expanded website, thehamletpodcast.com. I'm always grateful for your company, and I'll speak to you next time.